0: Proverbs 24, verse 27. Prepare your work outside and make it ready for yourself in the field. Afterwards, then build your house. This proverb exhorts you and I to make sound preparations, then enjoy reward. This is, after all, in a way, the trajectory of the Christian life, is it not? You and I now... Prepare, only to one day then enjoy. Why say that? Because this morning we enter Matthew chapter 26. This is the build-up now to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Preparations are underway, righteous and unrighteous. This theme of preparation is not unfamiliar to you and I. Back in chapters 24 and 25, Jesus preached on end times events, and he did this so we could be prepared for the end. He'd exhort us to be alert, and to be faithful, and to be serving, to be ready. You and I prepare for life with Christ. Our account today prepares for his death. In our passage, we're going to witness three preparations made for the death of Jesus, and it will remind us that you and I, indeed all of the world around us, is constantly readying itself and ourselves for this encounter with Jesus. So as we approach that day, we may wonder how are we to cope with those who are not preparing to see Him. How do we use our worship as a grace and a safeguard for that encounter? How do we avoid the compromises that can cause our held our heads not to be held high? I want to begin in Matthew chapter twenty six. We'll begin in verse one, and we'll unpack those questions as we go along. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples. You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. But well, in these first five verses, we do indeed see a preparation for the death of Jesus. And this is the preparation of hostility. This is a group of people preparing to kill Jesus with hostility. You notice that the first two verses act or function a lot like a topic sentence. They're the overarching umbrella for all that's going to come in Matthew 26, and even in Matthew 27. As soon as Jesus finished preaching... It was that Olivet Discourse back in chapter 25. He tells his disciples, I'm about to die. Death is never far from any one of us. It seemed as though a, a hunter was stalking his prey. That's how death followed our Lord throughout his life. At his birth, a lunatic king sought to kill him. His hometown tried to hurl him off a cliff. In John chapter 7, he avoids the entire region of Judea. Why? Quote, the Jews were seeking to kill him. But you and I also know that our Lord's death is not going to be determined by a king. It won't be determined by a town. It won't be determined by a religion. Jesus says, I lay down my life. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Well, that time now draws near. And chapter 26 is taking place during what we call Holy Week. This is probably Tuesday or Wednesday, depending upon how you count the days. The crucifixion of Jesus takes place on Friday. Verse 3, then, jolts us into a new scene, and you're going to see a lot of movement over these next few chapters. It's almost as though the pace of events quickens as the death of Jesus approaches. The first preparation for the death of Jesus is a plan. We might call it a conspiracy. We find ourselves, in verse 3, in the courtroom of a high priest. Some of your translations read his palace. The man's name is Caiaphas. He is the priest of the Jewish people. He had a ton of power and he meant to keep that power. Historically, for 18 years, he maintained this position. And let me tell you, that is not an easy thing to do when the ruling power is Rome. He had to be pretty chummy with the Romans to keep this position as priest. But then along comes this carpenter from Galilee. This Jesus of Nazareth is drawing a lot of attention. And not only from the average citizen, mind you, but also from Rome. And These religious people, the religious elite, those gathered in his palace, they see a problem. Over in John chapter 11, verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying... What are we doing? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You hear how their religion had gone sideways. Continuing, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it's expedient for you that one man died for his people, than that the whole nation might perish. That's a prophetic word packed with meaning, is it not? So here they were, the religious leaders. They're gathered around Caiaphas in his home. And this has that feel. All the dressings of the Old West posse. They're going to band together, and they're going to snuff out this Jesus, and they're going to do it underneath the badge of justice. You can almost hear the metal clanging as they're passing out badges to all the guys in the room. How itchy were their trigger fingers? Over the past few days, Jesus had come into town, greeted by ovation, we call it the triumphal entry. When he did, he came into the temple and he upended their whole money system. That had to hit Caiaphas in the billfold. He then goes on to publicly shame them. For 23 verses, throughout Matthew 23, he denounces them all as hypocrites. Let me tell you what, you cannot call these men yellow and get away with it. It's almost as though a boxer is receiving blow after blow. And he's cornered and angry and unable to fight back. They wrangle their posse. And this is Passover week. Surely Jesus is still in town. John 11 verse 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he was to report it so they might seize him. Wanted, Jesus of Nazareth reward 30 pieces of silver freshly deputized these men are going to go out and find Jesus they're going to do it all in the name of godliness and jewish religion but they're going to do it quieter somewhat restrained you see his execution cannot be during this festival otherwise quote a riot might occur Now, I had mentioned that Passover was underway in the city of Jerusalem. The festival of verse 5 is the Passover festival. This was a huge celebration, and it took place once a year. This is where the people of God gathered together to celebrate. They're reflecting back upon that Exodus when God delivered them up out of Egypt. There's people everywhere. This is a deluge of humanity trying to get around this town, around the city of Jerusalem. It's like trying to get in and out of Seattle during rush hour. And not only that, but Roman guards are in huge supply. They know what time it is. This is when riots happen. This is when disorder takes place. The military is on full standby. These people... The Jewish leaders knew. They loved this celebration. They loved what God had done for them. This was a a wildly popular event, not to mention Jesus himself being popular. Only by stealth could this posse succeed. Caiaphas prepares for the death of Jesus Christ. A Passover lamb would be slain. The lamb of God according to that plan of God. Now, you and I, on the application side of this, probably are not like Caiaphas or the religious people in that room. However, we know people like this. We rub shoulders with people hostile toward Jesus, the Lord that we love. You and I have experienced emotions, probably at times deeply saddened, angrily frustrated at how people talk about Jesus. How do we respond to this? What are we to do? Well, I think, firstly, you and I can rest in the divine sovereignty of God. This is the habit of Jesus. Now, as we read him speak in verse 2, we can't detect his tone, but I highly doubt he's speaking with much anxiety or fear. Jesus had been predicting his death, and he's been doing this throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 16, then 17... Then 20, now chapter 26. This is going to be the culmination of the most unjust hate, but Jesus trusts God. For you and I, as we hear venom spewed toward our Lord, we can know that God is in complete control and that God is not shaken. And Jesus is not worried at this. He is not anxious by this. He is in control. Secondly, when this happens, we need to maintain a patient endurance. A patient endurance. Our Lord remains so steady when attacked. Now, you must realize, as you've read the Gospels, that there are times when Jesus reacts in different ways to different situations. The context often or the situation often dictates his reaction. There are times when Jesus does, in fact, uh, shut down the conversation. There are times when Jesus does go on the offensive. But oftentimes, he would ask questions. He would ask questions back at his detractors. Where did John's baptism come from? What did Moses command you? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? You see, our Lord maintained a patient endurance in the face of some very hostile attacks. And in the end, that bore fruit. That takes me to our our third application. In these times, we should extend a loving mercy. Hard as it may be, we ought to extend a loving mercy. Right away, I think of Nicodemus. He was a Jewish leader, and he had some position or some stature. Now, to be clear, I wouldn't lump Nicodemus in with Caiaphas and the whole group in the room that day. In fact, I don't believe Nicodemus hated Jesus at all. But he is a great example of a Jewish religious leader who came to faith, keeping in mind that this man was a Pharisee. He bore the title Pharisee. This reminds us then, Jesus ministering to him, That there is an eternal soul behind every label. In John 3, our Lord saw this in Nicodemus. And in loving mercy, he shared the gospel with him. We have John 316, 3.16 because of Nicodemus. Jesus knows that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And this is true for those who are hostile toward Jesus. And it's true for those who have labels. They are, after all, eternal souls. And they're on a wrong path. They're on a bad path. Sometimes their response to Jesus, it baffles us and it angers us. But they need Jesus Christ. We can give that to Him. We can give them the gospel with a loving mercy. Well, there's a second preparation that's made for the death of Jesus in our account. And this is one of worship. In verses 6 through six, 6 through 13, we see a preparation of worship. In verse 6, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Well, we see another scene shift here. Where are we now? We're over in a community called Bethany. This is just a few miles outside of Jerusalem during this holy week, during Passover week. Jesus spent his days, the daytime, in Jerusalem, and his nights in Bethany. All four of our Gospels record an event like the one we just read. All have this, quote, anointing. The Gospel of Luke clearly took place earlier in the ministry of Jesus. Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, records this exact same event, and John's Gospel probably does as well. Over there in John 12, this is where Mary is named as the one anointing. And this is Mary, uh, a friend of Jesus. Mary connected to Lazarus and Martha, not Mary, the mother of Jesus. The home belongs to a man named Simon the leper. He was probably cured if he's hosting people. And Mark describes Jesus as reclining at the table. A woman approaches. She breaks this vial of perfume, V-I-A-L, and she pours it on his head. Now, this vial's been described as, as a small flask with a long neck. The perfume is sealed inside. That's why they had to break it to get to it. The Mark describes the perfume as, quote, pure nard, meaning it's undiluted, meaning it's very expensive. That smell would have been overwhelming as the fumes came off of the body of Jesus. John 12 says that, quote, it filled the house, and it filled the disciples with anger. Why this waste, they ask. One disciple, Judas Iscariot, he's going to come right out with it. John chapter 12, verse 5, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now remember this question later in our account this morning. John's gospel is going to go on and give some commentary on this question. John says, Now Judas said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Now nevertheless, we also read that the disciples were aghast. They couldn't believe that Jesus did this. Isn't this the same Jesus who told the rich young ruler to go and sell all your possessions and come follow me? Isn't at this very moment, just down the road in the city of Jerusalem, many, many poor pilgrims gathering to worship God, doing so impoverished with the foot of Rome on their necks, Jesus becomes aware of their response. It's an interesting word when it's used of Jesus elsewhere in Matthew. He's detecting something that's not spoken very loudly. It's whispered or muttered. He said, why do you bother the woman? She has done a good deed to me. You will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. He's not endorsing the fact that you're neglecting the poor. He's saying, don't ignore the poor. You have have plenty of opportunity to give to the poor. But he's pointing to the moment. He's saying, this is a special moment. This is a unique moment. It's hard for us to tell exactly if, if Mary understood what she was doing as she anointed Jesus. If she understood that the fullness of the ramifications of what was to come She prepares his body for burial. She anoints Jesus. In the Bible, to be anointed is to be separated, to be set aside unto God. It's to be appointed for a special purpose. In the Bible, do you know who received anointings? Prophets, priests, and kings. Now, normally, these three offices are separate from one another. One person isn't occupying three of them. Rarely would one person occupy two of them. But Jesus is the prophet of God. He spoke the words of God. Jesus is the priest of God. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And Jesus is king. To him was given dominion, authority, and a kingdom. Jesus approves this anointing. In fact, he endorses it. He alone occupies all three offices. Jesus is prophet and priest and king. And he points to his death. This is an unusual thing that you and I in the Christian tradition we celebrate a death. Have you ever thought about that? Why do we do this? Who celebrates death? Death is a time for mourning. It's a time for grieving. Death is a time for tears and a time for sorrow. Nobody else does this. Someone observed, for example, if history enthusiasts got together and discussed or celebrated the life of Abraham Lincoln. If they did this, they would celebrate his presidency. They would celebrate the historic Emancipation Proclamation. They would celebrate the memorable Gettysburg Address. They'd celebrate that Lincoln brought the country through a civil war. Would they celebrate his assassination? No, that'd be weird. But here we are as believers, and we celebrate The death of Jesus. Why do we do this? Well, we do this because the death of Jesus brought you and I life. We do this, we celebrate his death because he tells us to. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You and I, we We place uh, an image of a cross, that thing used to crucify men. We put it on the stage in the corner. We celebrate the death of Jesus. It's a torture device, and we say, thank you, Lord. You and I speak of washing by the blood. And we do all of this because the death of Jesus is not the end. God has taken death and turned it upside down at the cross and in Jesus. There was this wonderful sermon that that Peter preached. It was soon after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. In Acts chapter 2, he's preaching to the Jewish people. And he tells them that God raised Jesus up again, putting an end to the agony of death. It was impossible for him to be held in its power. He says that God resurrected Jesus from the dead. He goes on. And Peter says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is Lord, meaning that he holds all authority, and he is the king. And Jesus is the Christ, meaning literally the anointed one. We saw that here this morning. And Peter concludes by saying to that group, he tells them to repent each and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. He says, turn from sin and be baptized. Receive forgiveness for your sins. And this is a message not only for the Jews on that day with an earshot of Peter, it's a message for you and I this morning. That if we have not yet come to Jesus, believing upon him, that he died and rose again, we can do that today and be made right with God. What we've seen here this morning so far, this wonderful act of worship by Mary, And we've seen as well another way that some have prepared for him. And that was through hostility. But there's yet one more way, one more preparation in Matthew 26 to examine. One who's closest to him betrays him. It's a third preparation for his death. It's a preparation of compromise. Judas will compromise and turn Jesus over. In verse 14, one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. From then on he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. These first few verses of verse 14, or the first few words of verse 14, they cut. Because these words reveal that this opponent is not some Roman ruler. He's not some jealous king. The enemy of Jesus in this account is not a corrupt Jewish leader. He's not even an agent or a, an angel of Satan. This is someone who is one of the twelve. He followed Jesus, he served Jesus. In Matthew chapter 10, he received authority to cast out demons and to heal disease. This is someone who collected that leftover fish and bread from the miraculous multiplication that fed thousands. This is someone who felt the fear of the storm in the boat and the sea and someone who was in awe at the stilling of that storm. Judas heard his teaching. Judas shared his meals. Judas saw his miracles. By every outward indicator, Jesus, Judas loved Jesus. Almost every indicator. Remember, when Mary anointed Jesus, Judas raised the objection. Remember, John gave us that commentary. He gave us that behind-the-scenes look. He took us into the, to the, to the motives of Judas Evidently, the ministry of Jesus received funding. Judas was in charge of that money. John chapter 13 verse 29 indicates that that Judas carried the money box. And we've learned so far that he committed embezzlement or theft. It'd be interesting to dwell on this sometime. Jesus is all-knowing, yet Judas was in charge of the money box. Greed seems to be the most obvious motive for his betrayal. John's gospel, again, he clued us in as he pulled back the curtain. And you notice as well in verse 15, we just read it, you notice his question. What are you willing to give me? And the chief priests, again, this crooked posse, they understand this to be all about money. That's the second half of the verse. Some will go even further and say more about the motive of Judas. There's speculation ranging from his ethnic background. Iscariot seems to allude to uh, a background outside of Galilee, meaning maybe he was the only disciple not from Galilee. Or maybe it was just this general frustration. Along with many others, Judas had been looking for God's Messiah, some military ruler to come in and overthrow Rome, to set things back to rights. Well, Jesus has done, lots of miracles, but no military might. Rome is still in power, the people still oppressed. Maybe it's just disillusionment. This depraved deed takes place for 30 pieces of silver. Back in the Old Testament in Exodus 21, that was the price of a slave. Jesus, the suffering servant, would be turned over for this menial price. what is your price this morning? What is your price to betray Jesus? Not as Judas did. You're not turning Jesus over to his death. But to give way to those desires of the heart. Those fleshly temptations that do wage war with our soul. Judas suffered from greed. Maybe that's your heart idol as well. It could be something else. It could be immorality or lying or self-promotion and so on. The list goes on. But in our account, we see a man who's ready to roll over for 30 pieces of silver. But I believe our account also gives us a solution or an answer to that question. If we come to terms with the fact that we all wrestle with some kind of temptation and there's always some sin lurking ready to entice us, We also realize that we need the Lord and we're dependent upon the Lord to do these things that we do not want to do. I think there's a grace in our text. I think there's a safeguard that helps us. Mary went all in. Do you remember that back when she anointed Jesus? She went all in on Jesus. She gave Jesus all that she had. And this is the picture in our account of Lordship. It's you and I coming to Jesus Christ and giving him all of who we are, holding nothing back. By the way, the most expensive thing you can give Jesus is, in fact, your life. Going all in for Jesus Christ. No small drips here and there. Not one day here, not a little desire there. We're not coming to Jesus with some kind of sprinkling or spritzing or splashing. We're cracking this vial open and we're pouring ourselves out. J.C. Ryle says, when a human being understands the sinfulness of sin and the mercy of Christ in dying for the undeserving, that person will never think anything too good or too costly to give to Jesus. Is that you this morning? Do you see yourself in that light? Do you see God in that light? In our account today, the preparation for the death of Jesus began But for you and I, preparation for life with Jesus has already begun. I mentioned that this is a grace, that this is a safeguard, that if we come to Jesus as Lord, giving him all that belongs to us, that's going to safeguard us from the compromises of Judas. Hopefully, it clearly keeps us from the error of Caiaphas. And to be clear, doing this kind of a thing, going all in, it's risky, it's scary. We're surrendering control to Jesus. And it doesn't result either in sin-free living. We'll still struggle, we'll still sin. It doesn't mean we won't be tempted or tested anymore. Those things will continue to happen. In some measure, something will always be lurking, tapping on the shoulder, at least till we get to heaven. But living all in for Jesus, it does mean relationship. That we have a relationship with Jesus. And it means that we receive the blessing of God upon our lives. Grace and strength for obedience. And over time, it will mean a change in affection. And we'll experience forgiveness of sins and, and grace for when we fall. This means a life well spent. To close in the words of Andrew Murray, God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life wholly yielded to him let's pray heavenly father in Jesus your son we see a life wholly yielded to you completely trusting and fully dependent he's fully God yet he had a need oh father we are far from where Jesus was but we have that need and I pray that we would see it today And that in our preparations for life with Jesus, we would give all of ourselves to Him. That we'd hold nothing back. And I do pray for us, Lord, in ways we might not see in areas unknown that You would reveal them to us. You might show us very kindly and mercifully areas that we are claiming which belong to You. Thank You for Your long-suffering Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.